Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word, leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email to let us know what you like about the show. In today's episode, we welcome a special guest to the show. Richard Butchins is a filmmaker, documentarian, TV presenter, and disability activist who has worked on the BBC's Panorama, Channel 4's Dispatches, and ITV's Exposure, among many others. To find more of Richard's work, including his short films and photography, follow the link to his website in the show notes. Richard talks to Alex and Ethan about the challenging 1972 Kazuhara documentary Sayonara CP, one of his key influences. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. I'm here today with our regular host, Ethan Lyle. My name's Alex Widdison, but we also have a special guest today, Richard Butchins. Uh, so hello to both of you. Hi. Thank you for having me. And uh, today we'll be talking about the 1972 documentary Sayonara CP, directed by Kazuhara. And I'm going to pass over to Richard to introduce the film, as he's the one who selected it for discussion today. Thank you, Alex. So Sayonara CP, which means goodbye, CP. CP stands for cerebral palsy. Uh, as you said, it's a film released in 1972, made in 1971 by the Japanese documentary director Kazu Haru, who is probably better known for his film The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. That's the one that made his name. He's a very... Um, iconoclastic and auteur director and Sayonara CP was his first film, his first made film that he made himself. And he focuses in that film on a group of people living in Tokyo um, who have a name Ayu Shibu no Kai, which means the Green Lawn Movement. And these were a group of individuals with cerebral palsy who established an independent living community in Tokyo in the very early 70s. And they were very active politically. They um, they were, yeah, they were really out there campaigning for the disabled in a way that really, literally nobody else was in the Western world. I mean, certainly not, you know, it certainly preceded the American independent living movement. Um, and he worked with people in this film for some years beforehand, uh, as a kind of support worker and he posited to them that he wanted to make a documentary about them and there was a back and forth and they agreed and they actually became collaborators in the film they contributed some money the budget was tiny i think probably like twenty thousand um, dollars and the participants contributed money to the film and were active collaborators 
in the production of the film and in the and in the decisions around the finished version. So in that way, it was actually quite a revolutionary piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's revolutionary in other ways, but that is really the genesis of the film. And it follows two main protagonists in the film um, who are members of this movement, uh, one of whom is a kind of a poet who we're going to refer to as Hiroshi. Um, and forgive, forgive us, please, anyone listening, if we get pronunciations wrong of the names. Um, and the other protagonist is Koichi, who is kind of a photographer. And, but it follows them, but it also very much focuses in on this group of people and how they lived and how they functioned in Tokyo in, in I think, what would be considered now a very intrusive way. Hara himself not disabled, um, but his producer, Kobayashi, was, is, had polio. Um, and so basically he set about filming this group of people over a period of six months with a little black and white camera with no sync sound well, and, um, and very little film. So he only had 30 seconds or four minute rolls of film. And he basically followed them about, he sort of followed them in their daily life, but also in their activism, in their political activism uh, and in their personal lives. And you get... I think the thing for me that really stands out about this film, which is why, to me, I still feel it's like probably the strongest and most powerful documentary I've seen about disability. Uh, partly because the limitations on him making it means that he sort of disabled the filmmaking process in the construction of the film. So I find it has a whole range of levels of interest, but primarily it's the voices and the presence of the participants that make the film really strong. Thank you for bringing this to us, <clears throat> Richard. I'd seen Sayonara CP a couple of years ago, but when I uh, saw that you'd, uh, that was one of the ones you were interested in, I was really excited to go back to revisit it because uh, I'd been incredibly impressed by it and by Hara in particular. I only learned about him through uh, Emperor's Naked Army. Uh, and in the watching of this, I also rewatched. Uh, I watched one of uh, Hara's later films, A Dedicated Life, which is about a another individual who is uh, a, a, a writer called uh, Inoue, who is uh, passing away of cancer. And they work as very nice um, sort of pairing. But I'm interested to know, how did you come across Sayonara CP? Um, and uh, you mentioned it was, you feel it's one of the most, or if not the great one of the great film documentaries about living with disability and certainly i would agree it's one of the most raw and authentic portrayals of being disabled i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what uh what to your mind uh makes you think that it is one of the best you've ever seen well to answer your first question i came to the film um because i was working in 2018 i was working in japan making a film with a group of nonverbal autistic artists um, at a place called Atelier Corners. Um, and that was a project that was funded by Unlimited, who are an arts council funded disability led arts organization. And before I went to Japan, because I'd never been to Japan before, uh, the person who works with me as my support worker who lived in Japan and speaks fluent Japanese, I said, Oh, I think I ought to watch a few Japanese films not like anime, man, but I thought I ought to watch a few films. And so I got 
introduced to the Japanese New Wave, which was a really interesting cinematic kind of event, sort of starting in the late 60s, really around the time of the student revolution, student you know uprisings of 68 that happened all around the world. And I saw a whole bunch of films, Funeral Parade of Roses, which is a, a, a fantastic film, uh, Woman in the Dunes, Face of the Other, and this film, Sayonara CP, um, which I sort of heard about, but, but because we live in a kind of Anglo-America-centric kind of existence, it's, we don't really get exposed to Japanese cinema unless you make the actual effort to move into it and watch it. And I watched it and I was just blown away by the fact that this person had unflinchingly, and the contributors had allowed and participated in this unflinching representation of living with disability in Tokyo in 1971, which is just like, so you think, oh, well, I'd never seen anything. And I think it's that unflinching authenticity, the refusal of Hara to back away with the camera at certain moments, and his use of really, his use, it's almost accidental, but serendipitous things happen. Like for example, the opening scene of the film is really overexposed and very ghostly. And the reason it was overexposed is because he'd accidentally overexposed the film. And remember, we're filming, we're making a film on film here, not video. Um, and he had to use it because he didn't have, he didn't reshoot, he couldn't reshoot it. But it actually weirdly, weirdly introduces you to this kind of like almost liminal space that I think disabled people live in. And, and that sort of ghostly introduction of, of like sort of semi-visible children playing in the street and a person walking down a corridor. And it, it somehow just grabbed me. And then after that, you just get pulled in because the, the second or so scene in the film is this astonishing film where, where Hiroshi comes to a zebra crossing in the street in a wheelchair, gets out of his wheelchair and crosses the road on his hands and knees. And it's that the precarity in that scene is really strong. And, and Hara's got the camera down low and this guy is talking all the way through. There is sound, I must point out to people, but it was recorded separately on a recorder. Um, and you're just a bit astonished by it because you're astonished by it because in a way, the sort of wheelchair is a convenient container for disability. I mean, it's a symbolic idea that if disability is in a wheelchair, then for the non-disabled, it's handleable, it's copable, it's a bit like the zoo animal is in the cage, so you can look at it. But by getting out of the wheelchair, suddenly it's almost feral. It's like, oh, my God. And that, <coughs> that happening was actually something that Hara, it, he basically had to convince the contributor to get out of the wheelchair because also for the wheelchair for the disabled person is also a kind of comfort, convenient comfort zone. Um, and there was a lot of back and forth about that between, between the contributors and him. And I just think once you've watched those opening scenes, you're either completely hooked by the film or you're going to turn it off. I mean, you know, and then, and, and it just, it just goes on from there in this, very linear because Hara cut it completely linearly from beginning to end. He, you know, it's a straightforward linear narrative to a certain extent. And, you know, it, it just sort of like, that's it. I was hooked. I just wanted to know what am I looking at? And this is a really interesting portrayal of disability because as someone who is both physically disabled and ND, I sort of found the kind of 
the idea of the sort of visual challenge that it presented to the non-disabled, the discomfort that that must cause people to be a bit of a kind of like hook for me. Yeah, I think discomfort might be the crucial word in that scene. I mean, I was very struck by just like my simulation in my body of like how much pain you must experience sort of crawling across a main road on your knees and hands, particularly if you are used to using as a wheelchair. I sort of, I remember comforting myself saying, I, I wasn't sure that it was a new experience uh, for Hiroshi. Um, I thought, or maybe this is something he does as often as he can. And so maybe he's got calluses on his knees and it's not as painful as it looks, but you know, he, he expresses like just how um, terrifying the whole experience was as he finishes the crossing and, and, and reports back like, oh, I, I mean, it must've been recorded later, but he was reliving it as the recording was taking place, saying how exhilarating and terrifying it was. And it, there, there was this some, there was weirdly this feeling of like, a sort of jackass type uh, chaos to it, you know, like we're going to set up these sort of challenges that that affront the sort of uh, non-disabled uh, world and and uh, provoke them into uh, a response. Actually, that's interesting because you mentioned jackass, but this isn't done for entertainment. I think the thing about jackass is it 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 presents the disability when it does present it is a kind of like in the tradition of the freak show it's very it's like oh this is entertaining the uh, the guy with dwarfism being catapulted out of something and landing in a pile of shit somewhere you know whatever that this this i mean i've a quote from hara hara's position he says and i'll quote him that his stated position is the dichotomy between the healthy versus the disabled our starting point was this antagonism between the two. I felt without this premise, anything I might detect, depict would certainly turn out to be a lie. So he was deliberately antagonistic. And it, the, the discomfort that the contributor feels, I think is secondary to the discomfort that the audience feel about this. And I think that that is a theme throughout the entire film. There's nothing in this film that comforts or or causes what I call a comfortable sofa outrage you know, in the viewer. I mean, I would compare it, for example, with Crip Camp. I mean, and the reason I do that is because Crip Camp, the archive in Crip Camp is from 1971 stroke two. So it's from exactly the same time as Hara was making this film. Uh, but Crip Camp presents disability. It's by the non-disabled for the non-disabled. It doesn't at any point make you feel truly, really physically uncomfortable or like unable to quite know how to process the information. And Hara, all the way through this film, completely subverts the process of people processing information in the way that they would normally do so from, from a sort of documentary film. The scene, for example, there's a scene later in the film where Hiroshi's on a subway train and he's got gets on the subway train again, not in his wheelchair, gets on a seat and he's sitting there and it comes to the stop where they've got to get off. And Hara gets off with the camera and is filming Hiroshi about to get off the train when the film goes black. Right. Because he ran out of film. That, that was not a deliberate decision. He literally ran out of film, but he kept the sound recording going. And so you have this amazing sequence where 
you don't even know if he's managed to get off the train because he's, the film runs out before he gets actually off the doors. And you've got this all this audio, and then it sort of comes back in when obviously Hara's managed to reload the camera and the guy's on the platform, and he's sort of expressing how like freaked out he was about that whole process of getting off the train. And he kind of remonstrates with Hara to a certain extent about it. And that, again, is just another example, like the crossing, the, the zebra crossing, where you as an audience, even myself as a, as a physically disabled person, is going, I'm not sure how I can process this. I mean, I, I jumped on board very early. I, I tend to sort of be quite antagonistic in as far as I can be in my work towards non-disabled people going, this isn't made for your comfort and delight you know this is just to show you what it's like and so the, and there are new there are numerous scenes throughout the entire film which is like 82 minutes long where stuff like this happens and i think that and hara's camera work particularly as well i think is also slightly uncomfortable and the fact that there's no sync sound and it's just the whole thing is put together in this I think possibly only the way that you could do when it's your first documentary film before you get absorbed by the craft of how you put things together, how you make a film. Um, and to a certain extent, he didn't know how to make a film, and that shows, but it works. Really interesting that you talk about like the discomfort of the audience in relation to the discomfort of um, uh, the people who are involved in the film, because there's a couple of things that are in uh, of interest to me. That one. Even though I am, I think partially because I am disabled myself, I'm auto, I'm neurodiverse. Um, I found that the way it was filmed, as you said, was very was quite aggressive. And in, in and I mean this in a good way. It was a very confrontational film in the way it was. Uh, you know, very uh, the, the the acts that sort of uh, the poet in particular uh, undertaking are very sort of in your face, and uh, the the camera work is very aggressive. But also, <clears throat> it's interesting as well that we mentioned sort of. The, the lives of the people involved in the film because uh, there's a couple of very famous very um important scenes in that respect first is the opening scene which i think is uh i think it's the poet's wife leaving him and taking their children uh and then there's a later conversation i think possibly earlier in the film i'm not really sure uh, I'm, I'm sure Richard will be able to enlighten me on this, but there's a, a very famous confrontation between um, the poet and his wife and their kids in their house where the wife has basically said, I don't want you to make this film anymore. And if you make this film, I will leave you. And basically starts being quite legitimately upset at, at Harvard for having the camera in her face. And it's like almost pushing him away. And there's the very there's the slightly unsettling bit where one of the the, the children goes, "Oh, mummy, you're bleeding," and it's, it's it's a film which, and I know Harvard did a lot of this with things like Emperor's Naked Army, where it's very confrontational. But I found it a really really interesting element there of how Harvard inserts himself into the lives of his um, his subjects, almost his collaborators. So I was wondering uh, what you thought sort of about those elements, Richard. I think the element around the, the, the argument, the fight, basically, it's a fight between him and his wife, between Hiroshi and his wife. Uh, or was it Yokota? I can't remember which one. <laughs> I've got names confused. But the fight between the contributor and his wife is real, right? Now, she didn't want the film to be made, and there was a lot of discussion throughout the making of the film 
with all sorts of different people. They would back up, they would, they would get upset and they would want to change it. And they had these meetings. She didn't want to make the film and the fighting is, it's really disturbing because you're sort of watching this dis dis domestic dispute about the person who's holding the camera and he doesn't back off. He keeps filming and there's a point at which the children get involved in the fight. And I think I was thinking to myself, wow, you couldn't do that today. But I mean, my main thought was like, it's, but it's an integral part to the film because it shows tension, not only within the filmmaking process, with the contributors are with him, but also in a way, oh, look, they're married. They have arguments and domestic disputes just the same as everybody else does, right? And they can be quite extreme. Um, it wasn't domestic abuse. I'll make that clear to anyone who who's, hasn't seen the film. Um, it's an argument between two pretty much equal protagonists. They're both disabled. I think <coughs> what's also interesting about that, I mean, I think it's disturbing on, on a few levels. I think the one thing that that is interesting about the whole film and maybe one of my criticisms overall is that there's very little involvement or expression of a, of a female perspective on disability in this film. And, and that's, I think, partly symptomatic of Japanese society at that time. Uh, so they, there's a whole argument and it leads to a conversation between Hiroshi and his, his co-contributors about that he shouldn't be told what to do by his wife. And there's a, a line in it where one of them says, you shouldn't have married her. You're the man in the family. You're the one to make the rules. No need to listen to her. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a, a sort of a whole kind of like element there that's that's quite an undercurrent to the film. And you can't make up your mind if that's deliberate or, or otherwise. It's just, it's just there. And I think they discussed that at that point, whether the film should continue. I mean, as a result of this dispute, there's a meeting between them to say, does this, should this film continue? Should they not? Some want it to stop. Others are saying to Hiroshi that he can't quit because obviously his wife's putting pressure on him to stop making the film and he, is, he tends to want to do that because they've put money into it and it's, it's, their, it's their project too. So I think there's a, there's a, a huge di dispute and you see those tensions within the contributors as they all discuss it around the table. I mean, I think it just shows, yeah, that, that all families and all groups of activists get into fights and arguments about what they're doing, their lives. And I think in a way, actually, it helps humanise them because they sort of stop being these strange disabled bodies that are out and about and become actual human beings. I mean, I think I think Hara's quite careful in the film to layer and fill the textures of the characters so that they don't become just ciphers, but that they resonate actually as real human beings. And I do think there's a point in the film where you just stop thinking about them as disabled bodies to be to be watched and start to interact with them as sort of multi-layered human beings. I think that, I mean, the, the I think if I recall correctly, the specific um, fight between uh, Hiroshi and his wife started because she was insistent that he had to stop uh, crawling on his knees and, and start using his wheelchair again. I think, uh, she described um, how it was painful for him, painful for other people to watch, painful for her to see him do it. And I think it links back to this idea of performativity in the project where they do lots of these sort of um, interactions with the public, uh, such as crossing the road, such as um, their fundraising activities 
the poetry performance. And, but I think what's really crucial about this very troubling domestic uh, argument scene interjecting the meeting is that that scene like the least performative moment when we have all the members of the collective together debating um, the sort of pros and cons of continuing the project, but more than that, actually, a, a, a very powerful conflict between those who want to stop or feel pressure to stop and those who uh, feel pressure to continue. But I think it's such an access point into the thinking behind the film, this sort of reflexive element that if it wasn't there, you know, you wouldn't know for sure how involved in the sort of creative drive of the film um, the Green Lawn movement was. Uh, it was only there that we started to get this sense that they were equals in creating the film. Um, and so it's, while it, it was really, really disturbing, I think, actually, um, and... Uh, but it was also, yeah, quite, quite revealing. Another thing that concerned me a lot is the, I mean, this, it, it, there was this sort of warrior-like attitude, both from the Green Lawn Movement um, members, as well as Kozu Hura, where it felt like they had this cause and they would do anything to keep it going and, and really push it to its limits. But that sort of mentality meant that it was, it was employed in, in spaces that really didn't feel appropriate. I, you know, it just did not feel right that he was thrusting a microphone in the face of the wife as she was hitting it away and slamming doors, trying to get privacy. Like it, in terms of documentary ethics, it's about as far as you can get from norms as, as, as we know. I disagree with that in the sense that um, it's as far away as we can get from current norms in 2022. But I think at the time that that film was made, um, it wasn't common to have cameras, right? So everyone's got a camera on their phone, right? And, and you've got used to this idea that how things are presented to you, which is very different. I mean, I think of the films of Fred Wiseman, I mean, who's another amazing documentary maker from America around that time, um, made Titty Cut Follies, which was actually a film that was banned and could only be seen by mental health professionals until... He made it in 67 and it couldn't be seen publicly since 1991 because it's such a difficult film for people to watch. And I think, I think what Hara does there is he, I think he, it's really important, like you say, I think he absolutely at that point, people become human. They become, they become, as you say, active protagonists in the film, but also there's this back and forth, the domesticity of it. The fact that, yeah, he is still filming her. Uh, but remember, of course, when the film was finished, she must have agreed to allow that section to be in the film. Uh, so it's not like he didn't do that. And the other thing I just say is that he follows the film. He follows the film immediately after that sequence. There's a sequence where they are all having a big group photograph taken, all presumably all the members of the Green Lawns movement. And they're all together and they're all having this big group photo taken. You don't get told any reason why they're having the photograph taken. But I think that cuts to it to show that in spite of arguments, in spite of all the rest of it, there's a unanimity, there's a community there. And then he goes into a scene, into the scene with, with Kiyochi and his wife, who have just had a baby, as a kind of almost complete contrast to the previous scene. So I, I think he pretty carefully thought out how he's, incorporated these things into the film 
but in a way that doesn't diminish the difficulty for the audience, but does keep the humanity of the participants. Following on from that, I was doing a bit of research and there's a really, really good uh, interview in a, in a series called A Critical Cinema, uh, which was a selection of books from uh, the, the 80s to the 90s. Um, and it's he uh, and one is with Hara. And he talks about how when Sayonara was released, um, <clears throat> there was a, um, a screening of it. And there were a number of able-bodied people who watched it and castigated Hara for making what they perceived as something which was quite shocking and quite exploitative and quite um, uh, cruel. But interestingly enough, he says that a number of the people with cerebral palsy, including the Green Lawn Movement, who saw it, uh, very much took to his defence and said to the um, individuals who didn't like it, this is a way of thinking that's wrong with you. We have no problems with this film. And I found that very, very interesting. And I found that very, as somebody who who watched the film with, I think, a number of your concerns, Alex, to be honest, I, I found it in, place, in places very yeah, uncomfortable watching, and especially in terms of documentary ethics, which have developed in a very, very, in, in a much more sort of conscious way since. To, to find that there were people, to find that the, 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 the community that it was about really responded positively to the film to not only be quite surprising but also quite um reassuring as well and i think that's that's something i think i like about this film even though it's a very hard film to love in terms of it's very aggressive i like its honesty i like the fact that it's not ashamed to be as warts and all about what it's like to live with a condition um and horror is especially in his earlier works, Haro is always about the, the very warts and all aspects of his life. I mean, the film he made after this, Extreme Private Eros, is about his ex-girlfriend and his new wife and Haro in the centre of a very strange love triangle where Haro basically comes off as a cringing coward. Uh, it's very, very intense by all accounts. But I found that very, very uh, interesting uh, about the film, how much people... Um, in the community supported it, which was very heartening. I mean, they so they organised most of the screenings uh, were self-financed, so they were put together by Green Lords and by Hara himself. Uh, the main Japanese newspaper, Ashai Shimbun, ran a very scathing article about the film before it was released, um, and I think it was at a screening in Tokyo University where that people came up and said, you've made this you know, terrible, condescending, um, kind of exploitative film, making fools out of people, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yes, Green Laws Movement, the main contributor actually came along and said, no, it's the way that you think that is condescending and cruel. So that, and it, did create, it did create a controversy. Um, and there was one other very interesting aspect in this film that I found really interesting. Now, obviously, we watched a subtitled version, um, but Hara did not subtitle the film for the audience, working on the basis that if you were to talk to someone with cerebral palsy, because quite often cerebral palsy affects the way people communicate and it makes it slightly more difficult to understand them, but you have to put a bit of effort into it. And his rationale was, well, if you met someone 
in the street and were talking to them, there wouldn't be subtitles. You have to just do the work to understand what they're saying and refused point blank to subtitle the film, uh, which I think is a very brave move. And I, I think it's also actually the right move because, you know, I, I, it would be like, oh, this person's got a Geordie accent. We better subtitle them. I mean, no, you just don't do it. So I think he was, he was, I think he was very much showing, allowing the contributors to show what it was like to be them. And there was obviously an activist, an activist kind of thing to it. It was like they wanted to get their message out there. I am really glad you brought up the figure out the subtitles because I found that in reading and there was very, <clears throat> I was, I was, uh, I did support Haro in that. I thought that was a very bold move. And it reminded me of um, a, a Ukrainian film from a few years ago, which you might have heard of, The Tribe which was entirely done in sign language, but it was never subtitled with the... Um, and so there's, again, there is the challenge of sort of interpretation, which I found to be very, very refreshing. There's something else I, I wanted to mention. You, um, you mentioned quite rightly that people with cerebral palsy may have difficulty uh, speaking. And certainly a lot of, I believe it's the, the poet Hiroshi, has, uh, speaks a great deal of the voiceover and it's very evident that is that he struggles with speaking uh, because of his condition, and it takes him a very, very long time to speak. And it, it reminded me of something that uh, of the writer Laurie Strauss talks about. She talks about sort of music and disability, and like she says something on the lines of, "We often hear um, sort of disruption in the voices, like disruption in the soul, and it's and it's largely an ableist." Uh, connection to think that when we when we hear something that obviously sounds like we are hearing effort and Hiroshi is very clear he's making a lot of effort to speak because of his of the way that it affects his vocal abilities we somehow react um, either with fear or sympathy or, or condescension so I find that's very very interesting as well and personally wonders whether the people who criticised Harvard were in some respect reflecting their own frustrations at not being able to understand in that respect or maybe not feel it feeling as if they had been if not catered to or not sort of pandered to almost it's difficult to know isn't it really um i think we've got used to subtitles you know in this 50 years or whatever since that film's been made um i think the point you raised about documentary ethics is an interesting one because I could argue that there's no such thing as documentary ethics. Um, the ethic is purely between the filmmaker and the contributor, whether the contributor trusts the filmmaker and the filmmaker treats the contributor with the dignity that they require, regardless of whether they're disabled or not. I mean, you, you can see endless films on television. I can think of nine or 10 examples where I always end up with the feeling like, well, you know, you're the filmmaker and you got paid a lot, quite a lot of money to make this film and you've shown this film about, I don't know. There's an element of freak show, right, in the way that disability is presented on commercial television. Um, and it's, in a way, more reprehensible than a freak show because at least in the freak show, people got the people got paid to display their, you know, whether they're the kind of like, you know, the two-headed woman or the nine-footed chicken man or whatever it might have been. 
they made a living out of it. And I think we've kind of, there's a tendency to put disability in this weird box, right? Which um, there's always been a fear of disability, I think, amongst the non-disabled. It's not explicit, but I think it's an implicit, oh my God, that could, thank God that's not me. I always feel that that's probably the first thing that people think when confronted with an obvious physical disability. I mean, the situation is slightly different for what I call unseen disabilities. So I think I think Hara was just a bit unflinching. And in those screenings, there was a lot of backlash. And that but it all came from the non-disabled. This is interesting. The cerebral palsy community loved the film. And they could quite easily understand what everybody was saying, or what they were talking about. The, the backlash came from those people who I think were masking their own discomfort at what they felt by voicing an outrage at the filmmaker and at the contributors. Well, it's interesting, um, you know, in a way you're echoing something that happens in the film where um, uh, he or she organises a poetry reading in a, in a very busy public uh, train station and security guards turn up. He has this enormous crowd around him, people waiting to hear him speak or, or whatever their motives are. But um, uh, the security guards turn up and say, you've got to stop this. What are you doing? This is basically a freak show. It's not appropriate. And it's really a poetry reading uh, by a disabled person. They can't see it any other way. Um, so, so really, it's. Uh, I think you're right. You know, the the, the sort of discomfort of of the uh, non-disabled community is sort of shaping the discourse around, or is attempting to shape the discourse around how to experience these um, these events in the film, or even the reception of the film. Yeah, and I th I think that. That's, that's interesting. At the beginning of the film, there's a sequence where they're out in public speaking on microphones, handing out flat flyers, and people are coming up and giving them money in the box, which is one of the reasons they're out there. But almost universally, it's children. So someone gives their child money and their child goes and puts it, and you've got a voiceover of people saying why they've given money. Uh, and it's, you know, kind of the whole sort of, oh my God, I'm glad it's not me narrative. I mean, cut short. And I think that's, in itself a really interesting scene. And that, and that brings me to the to the bit with Koichi, who is taking photographs. He's got a little pent, a Pentax camera, um, which is quite difficult for him to use physically. And he's taking photographs. And one of the, the, the narratives throughout the film is his interaction with the camera and how that makes him feel, right? But also it, it, it actually is a really clever, but inadvertently or otherwise, device of reversing the gaze and making the viewer into the disabled gaze. So it's returned to the viewer by the fact, and you never ever see any of the photographs that he took. Uh, I, I don't know the reason for that, but I thought it's interesting that you don't because one, in modern filmmaking, you would think, oh, well, people, we better show some of the pictures that he's taken. But, they, he don't, but it's more about his relationship with the camera and, and there's a beautiful scene, actually, I think quite early on, where he goes to visit his wife who's given birth in hospital and you see the baby and it's a very touching scene. And again, I think it's one of those scenes where you sort of forget that it's a film about disability. And I think the contrast that, that Hara makes between that couple and the other couple is telling and, and obviously it's deliberate. It's to show, in a way, I suppose, the extremes of how you can interact and, and he goes through that entire film 
taking pictures. And I, I really always wanted to see what pictures he took, just out of curiosity, really. Um, but I think <clears throat> his discussions about how nervous it made him feel walking up to people with a camera to take photographs and, and their almost complete non-reaction to him walking up and taking pictures of them. Um, I thought that was really an interesting element and an interesting device. I'd, I'd like to, and apologies for this sudden shift, but it's a subject I did want to discuss. And I suppose it is in some respects about relations to the able-bodied world. And that's the, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Richard, as what you felt to be one of the flaws with the film, which is that it doesn't, uh, it kind of ignores a female perspective on disability. And I did want to talk about the relate the role of, well, the attitude towards women that some of the, uh, that either the film has or some of the individuals have, in particular in relation to sort of the concepts around sexuality, uh, because that argument, those arguably are some of the most interesting slash unsettling moments in the film. There's one bit in particular where uh, I, I should give a, a big trigger warning at this point, because we are going to mention uh, sexual assault uh, uh, the, and sexual violence. There is uh, a sequence where um, a number of the Green Lawn contributors, and we don't know who they are, we, we never find out who they are, talk about their various sexual experiences, and they're all men, and some went to brothels uh, to lose their virginity. But the one which always strikes me is the man who very candidly admits that he was part of a gang who raped a girl and he only felt bad about it after the fact and the and i can't remember what he describes as why he went uh, why he chose to do that i i think it's something along the lines of he felt that he would never have that sort of interaction with um women in a in a in a, in a non in a normal quote-unquote situation but i found it to be a a very unsettling sequence uh, for a number of reasons, morally, in my part, although I think it's a, a very interesting choice of horror to put it in the film. And I was wondering what you both thought of those comments and indeed the, the treatment of women. So, as I said earlier, I think part of the absence, it's more like there's not a treatment of women, it's like there's an absence of a female perspective apart from in the situation where the wife is berating him for being a part of the film and the other woman has given birth. Then you might go, well, that's not an absence. There's you know, quite strong, definitive sort of parts for women in the film. But what's missing is their perspective, their voice. And as I said, I think that's partly to do with the way that Japanese society was structured at that time. It may also have been a decision of Hara's, although I can't find anything in the literature to say that that was the case. I think the scene where the, the scene you're talking about is where there's a series of sort of talking heads from members of the all the male members of the group talking about their how they lost their virginity, I think, is what actually it's all about. And it's shot without sync sound so that all the voices are, you're not sure if the voices you're hearing are actually the voices of the person that you're looking at. Um, and the camera works very off kilter and, and the people's faces are moving weirdly. So there's an element of like not really being sure who's saying what, where and how, and you've got no context because it's just a headshot. And then you come to this, this maybe third or fourth in, where this young man admits that he's lost his virginity in a gang rape. And it's a mouth-dropping moment. I mean, it really is. You just, 
my jaw just dropped. I'm like, oh, and and then it's moved on from. It's not really dwell. It's not it's not dwelled on. It's just like, oh, that's how you lost your energy. Then we move on to something else, and you're just left with it. I mean, and obviously, I think. I mean, I don't know how people felt about that in 1972, but I know how we feel about it now. And you know, it, you know, it'd be as a documentary maker, if some I was filming someone and they admitted that they take a part in a gang rape, I would be absolutely obligated to inform the police. There would be no two ways about it. That's what I would have to do. Um, so, in a way, all the way through the film, there are any safeguarding issues, as we would call them now, right? Uh, which didn't exist then, I don't think. Um, I found that difficult. I found, I found, and maybe that's just a very modern perspective, but I found the absence of a female perspective on it, of how they felt, how the, what their role, where they fitted into society and all that. I found that an absence that I would like to have, have heard. But, you know, the film is the film and, you know, that that's it. I mean, you can't go back and make it different. So I think that's just, I think we just have to accept that that's probably a result of a decision by Hara, although his wife was the producer, so I don't think for one minute that they probably didn't discuss it. I just think, yeah, maybe he felt that that wasn't something that he wanted to illustrate and that his two contributors were male and they were the active protagonists of the film and it was them he was following. But that's speculation. Yeah, I mean, speculating about the decision to include that bit of testimony in the film, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody involved recognized how abhorrent it was. And we also get that sort of acknowledgement from the person speaking about the assault. But um, I guess the, to speculate about the motivations for including it, I think it was important. It seemed important, you know, for everybody involved to have a conversation that resists the infantilization of the disabled. So triggering a conversation about how you lose, lost your virginity and sort of engagement with uh, sex workers is um, you could understand the start starting point relating to this idea of seeing the disabled body as a sexed body, as a as a, a sexual as sexual beings, and um, engaging in controversial behaviour. You know, it certainly was a taboo to uh, visit sex workers and pay sex workers in that era, as it still is right now. Um, and, you know, even the idea that uh, disabled people can be sort of act villainously, uh, do evil things, be capable of that is uh, a sort of a, an illustration of humanity and flawed behavior and draws this image of the disabled body away from innocence, away from naivety, away from childlike uh, sort of personifications. Yeah, I think it stops you from looking at disabled people as uh, objects of pity or somehow devoid of agency, because I think society has a tendency to remove agency from disabled people. And I think if you wanted to sum up, this film is all about agency. Uh, whether, and, and also I don't think people should allow, who haven't seen the film, should allow the fact that there is this, it's a very short sequence where the, the man talks about it. They shouldn't allow that to colour the their view of the film because actually in a way it doesn't do that it is a shocking moment but there are other shocking moments for other reasons all the way through the film i mean and, and that sort of unflinching kind of like reality is the thing that makes the film so incredibly strong i would <clears throat> i'd agree up to a point in as much as i i think it's a very 
I wrestle with my conscience on that one because while on the one hand I do entirely understand what you mean in terms of it being a very important element of talking about the the disabled body and sex and that's actually what I wanted to lead on to in a second but also I, I find myself morally very very conflicted about how I feel I suppose I think it's perhaps I think it's perhaps the luxury of it being 50 years after the fact that I can sit here and go, well, I mean, I don't particularly, I, I mean, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of that, you know, one of the first films to talk about disability and sex, arguably, in one way, shape or form, includes mention of a, a disabled person committing a sexual assault. And I find, and I, I find, that quite hard to deal with in terms of my own moral perspective on the film. Um, but I, I do think, I, I could argue it's necessity in terms of the, the narrative, it's just that otherwise I, I don't entirely feel comfortable with myself or with the film, personally. Go on, Alex. I mean, uh, something that just occurred to me, you know, we're talking about this... Uh documentary not having enough of a female voice. We have to accept our own flaw here now. There's three men talking about this topic and there's only so far we can go without just basically being idiots. So, um, you know, we've done our best to address these issues, but I think we, we've uh, fallen short by not having a female member. I'd also like to say that what in response to what Ethan said, you're not supposed to feel comfortable. I mean, you're not supposed to feel morally comfortable you're not supposed to feel, oh, okay, you're supposed, it's supposed to have that effect on you. And I think that's the point of the whole film. I mean, it's almost like it doesn't really have a narrative for film. It's like a series of episodes in the lives of the people in the film. And the ending, which we'll come to later, which is incredibly powerful, the end, the beginning, and the, I mean, the whole film is powerful, but there are, there are certain moments in the film which are very gentle, like when they're all out in the orchard collecting oranges or satsumas or whatever it is, and they're all having a lovely time. And so there is dynamics. It's, this film is not an unrelenting parade of grim things that you, you know, it, it, it has humour, it has light and shade, it has subtlety, you know, it has moments of intense warmth. I just want to say that to people because, you know, if you have, if you're listening to us and you're sort of thinking, oh, I'm not going to watch that, I'm just saying, no, watch it because it's much more than the sum of its parts. So Richard and Ethan, we're coming up to almost our hour slot. And um, Richard, why don't you tell us what you wanted to say about the ending of the film before we wrap up? <clears throat> okay. So the ending of the film is Hiroshi naked in the middle of a road. I think it may be a bridge. Um, and he gets naked and he talks about how that makes him feel and he also kind of depressingly says at the end of the film that he realises that he's never going to be able to function in the world that he exists in. And I think that whilst bleak is an accurate summation of a lot of people's disabled position, that you know we struggle to function in this world because we're not really allowed to. But when he strips off naked, you're sort of you're seeing disability kind of like front and centre without any, not even the wheelchair. First of all, he gets out of the wheelchair that takes him out of that kind of like 
comfortable, digestible presentation of disability, and he's flailing across the road, right, in both fear and discomfort whilst talking about it. And then at the end, he takes off all his clothes in the middle of the street and just sits there, and the final shot is just him naked on a bridge. And there's kind of no avoiding disability. I mean, you can't avoid it in the film, but at that point in the film, you're just like, and that's the end. Bang, finishes. And you're just left sitting thinking, I've got to process this. It's going to take a while. I have to say, I loved that last shot. I think it's, I think uh, the, the story goes, and I'm sure, Richard, you've read this, but uh, for those who don't know, the story that Harvard tells about how it came about was uh, they, were, they basically were finishing the shoot. Uh, there was an argument between Hara and Hiroshi, who uh, basically went along the lines of um, Hiroshi wanted to stop filming, Hara wanted to keep filming, and it eventually ended up with uh, the producer, the wife, go, uh, pointing to um, Hiroshi and going, well, why don't you just t take your clothes off and do a handstand in the middle of the road? And um, he doesn't do a handstand, to be fair, as Hara think uh, misremembers. But it's such a powerful, it's such a brave shot. And I know, and I know, brave sometimes is a nasty word when to use when you're disabled or about disability because it's, you're so brave. Oh, look at you going out there! But the the guts of the man to to take his clothes off and to show his body, which you get the sense throughout the film that he has a sense of discomfort in his body uh, and it's and he talks about his body and how much it weighs and it's very clear that he's quite a thin quite a quite a scrawny individual in terms of what what's happened to him and so the fact that you sit you see him sitting there in the middle of the road just clothes off staring at you is just such a great fuck you moment in many respects it's such a great sort of two fingers up discomfort and so i really really like that moment and rightly that is the photo on the front of hara's book uh which i believe richard uh cited earlier so yeah i really love that scene i'd say that the word you're looking for isn't brave it's bold it's a really bold move i mean it's a real fuck you non-disabled world right um, and it's a bit like, for me, I think in a way, Sayonara CP is just a really long question. It's a really, the whole film is just a big question. And obviously people hate questions, right? Particularly long, complicated ones. They'd rather just be spoon fed something that they can happily go, oh, okay, that's all all right then. I mean, it's, it's definitely in my book, the best film that I've ever seen about disability and it hasn't been better. It's incredibly modern in its style, the way it's cut, the way it's filmed, people try to do that deliberately. I think it's without doubt, and uh, were it an English language film, we would probably all know it, but without a doubt it is with, it's a standout film. I absolutely agree with you there, but I think unfortunately we're running out of time and bold is definitely the word I'd use on reflection. Okay, so Richard, Ethan, I want to thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Uh, I think this may have been the actual, the most challenging film we've ever discussed on uh, Autism Through Cinema. And uh, uh, I think it's been a, a real uh, 
pleasure to really grapple with some of the more difficult aspects of it, as well as some of the more celebratory um, um, and uh, interesting angles. So um, I'd like to thank you again, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.